from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Rick Rubin has produced some of the most influential and creative albums of the past two decades with artists like the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, Slayer, Tom Petty, Johnny Cash, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, System of a Down, Nine Inch Nails, Audio Slave, Jay-Z, Saul Williams, and the list just keeps on going. Here, Rick and Ken discuss why truly great music almost always transcends our concepts of genre before waxing philosophic about rock, romance, and the potential perils of paternity. Hello? Uh, Rick? Yes? Hey, buddy, it's Ken. How are you? Good, how are you doing? Good. And uh, you over there kicking back in Hawaii? Yes, just relaxing and enjoying myself. Oh, man. So you're going to be there for a couple weeks? Yeah, till the 3rd. So what does your day consist of? I mean, after those three or four Mai Tais for breakfast? And um, I've <laughs> been walking on the beach and swimming in the ocean. I'm staying all the way at the end of the North Shore on Kauai, and the house I'm staying in is on the beach, and it's great. Oh, my God. So this has been sort of a good year to relax at the end of? Mm-hmm. A lot of work. A lot of work. It's nice to get a break. How's everything been going with you? Good. You know, we're getting ready to launch Integral University. Mm-hmm. It's that online death star. We have 25 websites, all fully stocked. Things like Integral Medicine, Integral Law, Integral Psychiatry, Integral Education, Integral Art. Obviously, we've been talking with you about some of the Integral Art stuff. And all of that is, you know, God, we've been working on it for, well, at least a year, which in a certain sense isn't very much, but in terms of web time, that's a lot because everybody does work 24-7. So that thing is all of these 25 websites now stitched together through Integral Commons, and that's all literally it's done, and we're going to start beta test January 12th, it looks like. Great. Yeah. We just so it's like, yo! Sounds good. I really want to check it out. Yeah, it'd be very, very cool. Well, you know, we talked before about some of the ways you got into this, and I thought we'd just sort of go over a little bit of it, because one of the things that is so striking about your contributions to art is somehow you just seem to have a nose for genius or for excellence, and words that keep cropping up when you describe the people you work with, but also the way people describe you, which is just that there's this excellence, this greatness that you seem to be attuned to. You know, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but it's really astonishing. I look at the list of people and groups that you've worked with. I mean, they're legendary. But there are also so many of them are ones that have meant a lot to me. And, you know, it's just, you're 21 years old. Maybe younger. Maybe younger. Yeah, it's actually sort of officially launched in, what, 1984? Def Jam? Uh, to be honest, I'm not so good with time. So. Yeah, I'm not either. If, I have to go back and reconstruct it like you, but I think it's around 1984. Like and that. you put up $4,000, your half, and Def Jam gets rolling. Mm-hmm. Run DMC. You discover LL Cool J, uh, you work with Beastie Boys, and basically Licensed to Ill is the first rap album to hit the top of the Billboard charts. You are 21 or 22 at that point. Right. When you reconstruct that couple of years, 
what was going on? I mean, it, it just sort of seemed like it happened, or were you just sort of following you just something you loved so much that this sort of all of this kind of excellence started to come together? Yeah, it really came together in a very natural way. There were no expectations whatsoever. It was really a hobby. Yeah. And we did it out of love of the music. And at the time, hip-hop was really just a local small underground form of music and everyone who was doing it was doing it out of passion for it and unfortunately as it got more popular more and more people got involved in it yeah as a way to earn a living we never thought of it as that we just thought of it as a thing that we loved and that we wanted to do for ourselves really right i guess the way it really started was i would go to these clubs and hear this music and was really is this excited. in the long island this is in manhattan manhattan area yeah yeah um, there was a club called Negril, which was a reggae club. It's on 2nd Avenue and maybe in 12th Street in yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. And um, one night a week they had hip-hop night, and these DJs and MCs would come down either from Harlem or the Bronx. Mostly the Bronx, I think, is where it was really coming from. Right. And it'd be a great party, and I would go there every week, and this is maybe when I was a freshman at NYU. Yeah. And I would love this music and the art form of the DJ being kind of the band, yeah. as opposed to just someone playing records. They really were someone who manipulated the music and yeah. scratched and played breakbeats and, yeah. you know, using like montage technique, created new music from existing music. And I loved it. And then I would go out and buy every hip-hop record that would come out at that time, which were all 12-inch singles. Right. And maybe... Two or three would come out every week, and I'd buy every one of them. Yeah. And the records that I'd buy never really reflected what it was like in the club. The club yeah. Was, what hip-hop has become is more like what the club was like, but the records that were coming out were more like disco records with guys rapping on them. Yeah, yeah. So I started making records really just to document what I was seeing in the club that was already what it seemed like the hip-hop culture was. Yeah. It just seemed like nobody was... Capturing it. Yeah, no one was recording it yeah. as it was. Yeah. And I think that that's, in large part, what I've done as a record producer since then is try to find the essence of the artist that I'm working with, not really to change them or make them something else. Yeah. I may work with them on honing what they are before we go into the studio, just in terms of their material and anything that I've learned from making so many records that I could pass along that helps the songwriting process or the recording process. I do, but it's essentially trying to get to the essence of each artist yeah. and bring out what it is that they do and makes them special and unique. Yeah. Well, you're quoted as saying that basically you ask yourself, what can you do to support them in being as great as they can be? That's correct. And that's what I sort of open this with is that evocation of allowing that sort of essence of the greatness of an individual or group to come forth and actually be heard and seen in a way that's authentic. And I think it's really interesting that you were saying this about hip-hop. Something you said, I saw you say it again, was with the noise conspiracy, which was they, these guys are fantastic on stage, but it hasn't been captured in a record yet. It, that's what I'm trying to help them do, is come across you know, in a CD or in an album in some way that's authentic to what they really like, the electricity, the vibrancy, the depth that you can experience with them in their presence. And I would even take it further to even say maybe a hyper-real version where mm. it's them or any artist I work with, it's like seeing or hearing them on their best night. It is capturing who they are in their essence, but at the same time, it's the peak version of that. Yeah. Because 
you know, if you follow a band around on tour and you go to see 30 shows, some shows will be much better than others. Right. And if you're only going to record one for posterity, you really want it to be the best one. Right. I mean, there's an album I made with Tom Petty called Wildflowers. And if you listen to it, it sounds like it was recorded in a day. Yeah. And it took us two and a half years to make it sound like it was recorded in a day. Because <laughs> that's listed as when you are asked your own favorite yeah. production. That's usually number one on your own list. It's up there. It's one of yeah. my favorite ones. I rarely listen to the stuff I've worked on. Yeah. But I really like the way that one sounds. And anytime I'm testing equipment or listening to new speakers or dialing into sounds of something, that's the disc I kind of use as a comparison of I know what it sounds like. Right. But I really I like the way that one came out. One of the commonalities of the people that you've worked with and the bands that you've worked with, I think it's a, a key to why you're so, you know, trans-genre or cross-genre or whatever term one wants, is that you just seem to be attracted, as I am, I think many people, just to, you know, greatness as it shows up, or just people that have this really extraordinary gift or something that's really deep or vibrant or awesome or amazing about it. And then it doesn't matter if it's rock or rap or hillbilly, for that matter, or classical or, or anything. Don't you think that that's part of why you've worked with so many different types of genre and different, quote, types of... Uh, Very much so. I don't listen in a genre-specific way. I right. And, you know, I listen... When I listen to the radio, I usually listen to oldie station, like, played, like, 60s music. Yeah. And if you listen, you'll hear a Doors song next to a doo-wop song yep. next to a Motown song yep. next to uh, maybe even a disco song like early disco yeah. and you're hearing kind of great music it's not about format it's, right. it's beyond format right. I listen that way naturally I'm drawn to things that are great and I never I mean in the beginning I started making rap records then when I started making heavy metal records people said you can't make heavy metal records <laughs> And when I started making comedy records or, you know, country records, every step of the way I've been told I can't do what I do. Yeah. <laughs> because people <laughs> tend not to work that way. People tend to have their niche and that's it. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's part of why people that do have an integral impulse, that that's what happens is that these things come in these sort of separated boxes. And I understand why the boxes are there and how they got there. And it's not really a, a criticism or a judgment. It's just that a certain type of awareness, a certain type of depth, a certain type of height just crosses those boundaries. And so you find yourself working as easily or as enthusiastically with a Johnny Cash as with uh, Jesus and Mary Chain True. or Ghetto Boys. And that certainly seems to be exactly what you've ended up doing. It's true. It's interesting that I think my favorite artists are the ones that transcend the genre that they're in. For example... I never really liked industrial music as a genre. Yeah. And when I would hear it, it never really drew me in. And then years ago, and this is until Nine Inch Nails came along, and then Nine Inch Nails was... Trent Reznor. Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. He grew up listening to that music, and his goal was to be an industrial artist, but his vision is so, to me, more grand than the genre yeah. that he breaks through the genre and has this kind of universal appeal that whether you like industrial music or not, it's beyond that. Right. And I remember when I first listened to his music, it took me a minute to get past the genre yeah. to get to him because, again, the trappings of the genre turned me off. Yeah. But 
he was so great that it pushed me through that boundary. He's pretty amazing. The same thing, similar, must also have been your experience, at least with part of what the system was doing, system of a down. It's the same, they come off of also this sort of metallic background, but in a way that Slayer was much more than metal. Right. System of a Down has broken every genre you can imagine. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Surge and System and what they've done and what you've done in working with them to produce, particularly Toxicity. Personally, I think it's one of the greatest CDs of the last decade in terms of what it managed so to do. Like That's been really satisfying on some deep level to be able to midwife that kind of stuff. Yeah? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't like it at all. Yeah. How did you find Slayer? Uh, How did they find you? No, I found Slayer. They were playing at the New Music Seminar in New York at the Ritz. Yeah. And I'd never heard of them before. A friend of mine brought me to see them, and there were a whole bunch of these bands. It was Megadeth and yeah. Anthrax, all the bands of that genre. Yeah. And Slayer closed the show, and there were a lot of people there. It was crowded, and the kids were just going nuts. And <laughs> I was surprised, having never heard them, they were really underground at the time, yeah. having never heard them before and never seen them before, seeing both that kind of commitment from the audience and they were, you know, really young guys at the time and seeing the kind of confidence that they exuded from the stage, yeah. they looked like a band that had been together for 50 years. Yeah. They, they couldn't have been more tight and confident and almost arrogant on stage and they were... 20 years old, you know, 21 years old. <laughs> it just seemed like they were from another time or so. It was very strange. And the amount of energy and power that they whipped up in the room yeah. really drew me in. Really, the energy and power drew me in before the music did. Yeah. Did they have anything recorded at the time? Is there anything out? I think they had an independent album, maybe an album and an EP on Metal Blade Records. Yeah. And it didn't sound anything like in person. It sounded not nearly as good. Yeah. That's, again, that's part of what drives you, I think, is attempting to convey through a medium like a CD some of that actual authentic presence that's so vibrant, but it's not coming across very well unless there is a producer who can do that. I, I guess. I, don't I just think. Really about that. Uh, we'll think about it because I'm not just sort of throwing compliments out there. Part of it strikes me as part of what, when you just sort of natively say that you're trying to provide a space in which they, the group, can be as great as they can be. That in part it's just that it's helping to find channels or open airways, if you will, that they can communicate their art through whatever media that they are, you know, handed. And it's very, very hard to get sometimes groups that are so great in person to come across on a CD or an album. And that's part of what I think a really intuitively great producer does. Mm -hmm. And it's got to be why so many people have sought you out and why you've had such good, you know, extraordinary luck, if luck is the right term, mm -hmm. with some of these really terrific artists. Helping them get that across. Yeah? I think so. Yeah. Well, it certainly worked for the list so far. Where did you run into the Jesus and Mary? Where did you run into those guys, Jesus and Mary? Um, those guys were, there's a person who worked at my label named Mark Geiger, who yeah. just was a big Jesus and Mary Chain fan, and he actually is responsible for 
bringing them in, and I actually never produced them, but they were on the label. Right. And I think they made one of their really great albums for us. By that time, well, wait, actually, where did you first meet Russell? We met at a party for a, there was a TV show called Graffiti Rock that Run DMC appeared on, and I met him at that party. It was probably in 19, in the 92 or 93. And we hit it off immediately. I had already made my first rap 12-inch record, which is called It's Yours, by T. Rock and Jazzy J. And it was kind of a local hit, as much of a local hit as you could have with, right. with a hip-hop record in those days. Yeah. Um, I met Russell, and he was surprised to meet me because I was white. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, no one involved in hip-hop was white at yeah. that time. Yeah. We just became friends. And you've kind of come around full circle. Distribution has gone from Sony back to uh, Def Jam Island under Universal Music. It has. It has. But it's probably going to change again because of all the people there, Lior and Russell, they've all left. Yeah. So I'll probably end up not being there. Is the music distribution business as crazy as it always has been? Yes. It's probably at a peak craziness. That's kind of what I've heard. How do you see that? What the hell is going on with all of that? Um, several things. I think one of the main things that's going on that no one looks at, I mean, everyone in the industry doesn't take responsibility for the state of the industry. Yeah. You know, it's the technology, and people are downloading music, and people are stealing music. I think really what the problem is is that the majority of music that's being put out is not very good. Yeah. And um, record companies teach their artists to be poor artists. Yeah. They teach them all that matters is a song that gets on the radio and nothing else matters. Yeah. So if you have one song that gets on the radio, just rush through the rest of it and put out anything that you can. And just It's more important that we get it out on time than it be good. God. And these are all you know young, impressionable kids. Right. And they look at these guys, well, they work with you know Metallica and they work with Bruce Springsteen and they work with... Prince, they work with all these big artists, they must know. So they're taught how to not care about their work, <laughs> that it's not important, that it's disposable. And that's really tragic, actually. It's, it's disgusting. And if you're a kid and you listen to the radio or whatever way you hear music and you yeah. hear a song that you like and you go out and you buy a CD and you do that 10 times and each time you do it, you buy the album for the song that you like and then you listen to the album and the album's not as good. Yeah. That happens to you a few times. You stop buying CDs. Yeah. So I feel like the industry is training people away from buying music. Jesus. But again, there are the few and far between. There's the radio heads that put out great albums. Yeah. The, the great artists exist, but unlike maybe in the 60s, when it seemed like more music was great, yeah. it seems like it's being viewed even by many of the artists now as a disposable thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you kind of have consistently served some of these really, really terrific artists. And so are you sort of okay with how it's going in terms of your participation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're having a great time and we're making great music. And yeah. it's easier when I work with a new band, typically, than when I work with an established. Some of the established artists have these bad habits ingrained, <laughs> and it's harder to get them to want to do the work that it takes to yeah. be as good as they could be. Yeah. With the artists I work with, we typically record, you know, 30 songs or more for an album and then pick the best ones and, you know, between 12 and 15 will be on the album. So it's yeah. 
it's almost like recording two albums, and every album we put out is like a greatest hit yeah. of two albums. Yeah. Most artists barely can get enough songs to do an album. Yeah. And feel like, well, as soon as we have ten songs, let's go to the studio, that's it. You know, it's a lot of time and a lot of work to make it good. Well, it's like you're saying, you want not just the essence of them, but the essence of them on their best. Exactly. And then it's pared down, too. I mean, it almost seems like... I mean, at one point I remember you saying something like, when you actually listen to some of the production stuff, there's so little of it there. And what I think you meant by that is that you just pared it down to the bare essentials, the best of the bare essentials. It's like a minimalist perfectionism. And that allows them, when they're really good, nothing gets in the way of it done. Exactly. And, and it's just right there with the presence. It's so astonishing. I think that's what really marks so much of your production values. It's funny. One of the really top producers I remember coming over to me and saying it was about that idea of them being so sparse. I don't know how you can make a record like that. It's so much harder. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, I don't have the patience. Yes. Because <laughs> if, if there are only three or four elements that make this song, those three or four elements really have to be perfect. Exactly. If there are 20 or 30 elements, it's harder to hear any of them, and it all kind of blends together, and it makes sound, and it's nice, but it's not about the personality of each of those yeah. pieces. Yeah. So it's very time-consuming and difficult to get it just right if you mm -hmm. want it to be so simple mm -hmm. and it really is from the foundation up you know you've heard stories of people saying we'll fix it in the mix or yeah you know we'll just put overdubs on it and make it good we really go from this foundation where if it's not good in its simplest barest most naked most immediate form then we discard it and there historically there have been two schools of thought on how to do it one is the kind of more produced, lots of stuff version. Yeah. And the other is the immediate, true personal output approach. But usually when that happens, it's often less edited. Those are the kind of artists that make, you know, an album or more a year and really show who they are, which are, it's a beautiful thing. Neil Young is one of those artists. Yeah. Neil Young captures the moment of who he is and then presents it with no gloss. Yeah. Really. I feel like what we do is sort of in between because we we go for that immediate, natural purity to start with, and that's our foundation. And without that, we have nothing. So we start there, but then we still may add some elements or edit elements mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. rework things, again, to bring them instead of from just reality to this hyper-reality. Right. To where it's something that you want to listen to it over and over again, and it has the naturalness of a spontaneous performance mm. and the perfection of the best it could possibly be. Wow. Yeah, that's great. And it is getting some of those bare essentials, even though, again, you're basically, you can work with them once they're there. But that really can be time-consuming in a way that I think some people find confusing. But it makes perfect sense to me. Karl Marx is credited, I've heard this quote ascribed to dozens of people, but I think the first to say it was Karl Marx, which was, I don't have time to write a short book. <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing. I mean, if you really have to say what you're going to say yeah. in 150 pages, you, you, know, you can blather on for three or 400 pages, and that's relatively easy as things go. Yeah. But to really come up with a short book that says it all is so much work. But it also takes an unerring eye or ear for exactly those sculpted forms that are the bare essentials. And I think that's what's so 
you know, exciting about... There's an elegance yeah. to it in its simplest form. It's one of the things about lyric writing in songs is trying to convey these complex emotional feelings in these simple, simple words, yeah. you know, in these short lines. You're trying to say so much yeah. and often are able to. I mean, the great writers, it's amazing. The song that we recorded with Johnny Cash that was originally written by Trent Reznor, the song Hurt, if you look at the words, they're so simple and elegant and they evoke so much emotion that you could listen to this song with maybe 20 lines in it yeah. and it can bring you to tears yeah. in a way that a movie, if you could be reached in the same way in a two-hour movie, it would be a great feat for the movie. Right. Right. Yet in 20 lines in a, you know, in a three-minute song, you can have that power if it has this kind of elegance and simplicity in the writing where it just can strike a nerve in you. It's really amazing. It's amazing. Well, and being able to spot and work with that, again, you don't have to respond to this because I'm just kind of, you know, it's kind of a blathering way of showing appreciation for what you're doing, but... To be able to kind of connect with that and bring that out and create a space where that can happen has got to be really deeply satisfying. And just letting that happen is really quite extraordinary. Where did you run into the Jayhawks? They were brought into the label by an a person named George Draculius, who's a great guy, and he produced their first few albums. We worked together for a long time. We went to college together, George and I. Wow. And he would play me the songs as they would work on them, and I'd give him put. And then on the last album that we did, which was called Rainy Day Music, we kind of worked with the band, or with Gary, really, the main songwriter, over a period of time, and really just focusing on the songs and helping get the songs together. Did that come out in 2003? I think so. Wasn't that album of the year? I don't know. For I, one, I love yeah, it. for one of the music magazines, I think it was. It's a really beautiful album. Yeah, it is. But it was one, again, where he wrote lots and lots of songs yep. and worked for a long time together and just done getting the songs in good shape. I think that's another important key element, too. It's like you were saying, some groups will, you know, barely bang together 12 songs and go, there's my CD. And actually, there's about a tenth of your CD. Yeah. I think it was Thomas Edison, somebody <laughs> said, How you have so many good ideas. And he said, well, I have a whole lot of ideas and throw out the bad ones. Yeah. Exactly and, right. and that's really what you have to do in that sense. So, like you say, record 30 or 40 songs and then, you know, cut out two-thirds of them, and there's your CD. Another thing that I suggest to artists to get in the habit of doing, and this is, again, against the way many artists currently work, the way many artists currently work is it's time to make an album, so it's time to sit down and write some songs for that album. Yeah. And I suggest that artists live as songwriters and that they're always in songwriting mode right. we don't write songs to make an album we write songs because we're songwriters and we're always writing songs right. and then anytime we want to make an album there's always a lot of songs to choose from yeah. because we're always in songwriting mode yeah. and I think it's a healthier way to think about it instead of uh oh I'm supposed to write the best songs of my life in the next two months yeah that's it's like homework it and seems unrealistic yeah <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> and it's like fishing, you know. You never know when when the fish is going to bite. You know, you have to yeah. always have your hook in the water if you want to be <laughs> catching fish. 
Well, great artists are kind of constantly, in the best sense, doing that anyway. They're obsessed in the best sense, don't you think? I mean, they're always sort of creating and almost don't have any choice. So it would be giving them permission to keep doing that and not just sort of wait up and sit down and spill it all out in, in a month or two, as you're saying. Yeah, it seems like that. It's not always the case. Really? No, it's not always the case. Yeah, yeah. Um, for some reason, they're all just habits. If you're in the habit of recording an album and then going on tour for a period of time and then taking time off to make your next album, the cycle of that naturally takes on a life of its own. Right. And you think, well, I'm on tour. I don't write songs when I'm on tour. It's, it's not thought out, but it just works out that way where... Um, Artist lives get put in boxes and get scheduled yeah. out, and yep. they're not always writing. Yep. Ultimately, I think the best artists are always writing. When did you get the notion to work with Johnny Cash? When did it first cross your mind? The idea of him came about sort of in a backwards way, but I'll tell you the story. I had started a new label. I had left Def Jam. I started a label called, at that time it was Def American, and... That was in 1988, roughly. Something like that. Yeah. Through the Def Jam days and through my new label, I'd only sign new artists. Yeah. And I'd only work with, you know, first-time artists. And I was thinking it'd be really fun to sign and work with a legendary artist who may not be in the best place at this moment, yeah. but who we could do the same stuff we do with a new artist with, with a grown-up artist. And so the idea of someone great and grown up came first <laughs> and then I thought who's that and the first person that I thought of was Johnny Cash yeah I thought he's you know there's none greater yeah and maybe at that moment in time he wasn't doing his best work and didn't seem to be in a great place creatively there was a sense that he'd been discarded yeah and I thought well he's just as great as he always was yeah but he's not being paid attention to so yeah let's see what happens if we nurture and pay attention to him. It's an extraordinary combination, the two of you. Johnny Cash meant so much to so many people, and particularly my generation, come of age in the 60s. And the man in black, Johnny Cash, was many, many things, not just a great artist, although he certainly was that. But it was an era when finding moral figures for us was very, very important because the Vietnam War was very confusing. It wasn't just obviously all good or all wrong. It was very difficult to find your way in that kind of climate. And so we looked at people like Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and Johnny Cash. And so it was really extraordinary, as you say, that in a sense, at one point, he almost seemed as if he had been thrown away. He had a TV show, refused to bow to the corporate powers, and it cost him dearly at some point. And it's as if at that point he was indeed thrown away. And so to come along and have the two of you sort of work together is just an extraordinary idea. And it wasn't just that you were able to sort of, quote, pull an album out of him. You guys did four extraordinary albums recorded mostly in his cabin in your living room. I mean, it's just such a <laughs> exquisite destiny, if you will. Yeah, and we recorded a lot. I mean, only four proper studio albums came out, but we probably recorded, you know, 
ten or more albums of music. Yeah. <laughs> We've already heard the ratio of songs you have to do to get a CD, so exactly we can imagine how many... Uh... We put out a box set last year called Unearthed, yeah. which was something that Johnny and I had been talking about doing, kind of cleaning out the vaults of a lot of stuff, and that was five CDs, four of which, four whole CDs of material that had never been out. And then since the last album, we've probably recorded 60 songs, of which 30, I imagine, would probably come out someday. Wow. We did a lot of work. We really, we did a lot. It's a <laughs> and now a similar thing, if you will, with another Neil, Neil Diamond. That's correct. So have you, uh, I don't want to insult anybody here, but, you know, it's probably hard to get underneath Neil Diamond for Neil Diamond. How do you mean? Well, you're talking about sort of working with somebody fresh sometimes, you know, getting them in a sense to start over, even though they, you know, clearly know what they're doing, very accomplished, but he's got such a history, there's such a myth about him that he must have a hard time getting under the Neil Diamond in order to come up with a sort of a fresh approach or something. It's true. So, <laughs> so have you guys uh, succeeded in? Uh... We're in the pro. We <laughs> recorded dozens of songs. Yeah. We've narrowed it down to what we think the album is going to be. Oh wow! And it's just spectacular. I bet. It's just fantastic. I bet. He said he's worked harder on this album than any album he has in his whole life, and he's probably made fifty albums. Yeah. And he believes this will be his best album. I bet it's true too. That is so cool. Is there, uh, it just sort of, it unfolds when it unfolds? Are you aiming for a particular release date, or can we look for it probably sometime in the coming year? Sometime this year. Don't know when yet. Have you wrapped the actual recording, and you're doing mostly post-production now, or? I think we have the basic tracks yeah. on all the songs. We may try to beat a couple of them just to see what happens. Yeah. And then there's additional orchestration and overdubs and work to be done to make them as good as they could be. Neil's still kind of rewriting some words that he mm-hmm. he feels can be better. He's a real serious song craftsman. And yep. He doesn't need prodding in terms of working hard to make his songs as good as they can be. He's very obsessive and cares mm-hmm. very much and is constantly rewriting. And yeah. the time we were recording in the studio, he barely said a word, but every time we would do a song, it would be, you know, 10% different than the time before because he was just digesting it and rewriting and making notes and, wow. and just changing. Sometimes, you know, just the tense of a line or changing an uh to a the or little things, yeah. but they would really all add up to yeah. being more convincing. And one of the songs that I really love that we recorded it's one of my favorite things we've done. And he said, I think we should try this one again. I said, I think it's one of the best things we have. And he said, I feel like it works intellectually, but not completely emotionally yet. Wow. And I feel like I could get a performance where it'll work on a more emotional level. Wow. That's great. Wow. <laughs> you know, he's of a, an age where, in a sense, he's almost closer to the really great... American songwriters like Cole Porter or Gershwin or Berlin or some of those 
folks that really, really took songwriting as a career in the best sense, as an actual profession and not simply something you did in between concert gigs. And he seems to bring that sort of craftsmanship and obsessive details in the best sense to the craft. It's true. And he's such a great singer that along the way he kind of got viewed as more of a singer. Yeah when really he's a songwriter. Yeah. And not to take anything away from his singing, but his craftsmanship as songwriter, and I think that's really what this album will show, he's more the singer-songwriter than the singer. Yeah. You know, I had him play, he played guitar on, on the whole album, and he hadn't played guitar on anything he recorded since 1966. Jesus. <laughs> My God. How old is he now? I think he's 62. God, it seems like he would be a tad older, but that's amazing. But I was going to say that the difference between just singing a song and playing and singing the song at the same time really changes the artist's relationship to the song. Yeah. And he sings in a whole different way when he's playing guitar, and it's less just about a beautiful vocal performance, although it is still that, but it's more of a, really a connection to the material. Right. Different. And I think it's really been a both fun and fulfilling and exciting project. I'm so proud of what we've done so far. And yeah. I just think it's going to be incredible. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. As a matter of fact, next time you're in L.A., I'll play you some Oh, okay. It would be terrific. Play you some music. Um, give us just a little quick... Update. Where are you with Audio Slave? Uh, we're finishing vocals and we start mixing in January. Very cool. That's looking pretty good. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And how's System? System's great. We've already started mixing. Uh, we may be, I think we may be done with anything. I think I have some little piano parts to do that I usually do that are kind of invisible but just reinforce sections. And there may be a little bit of singing to do here and there, but I think for the most part, that one just has to be mixed and finished. But it's probably, you know, a good month or more of mixing. Yeah. Because we're doing two albums at once. Yep. How are those two albums, are they going to be part of one package? I think the way the band decided to do it was to release two separate albums, one, you know, in March or April and one around Christmas time. Right. And the packages will interlock so if you buy them both, they'll fit together and make one kind of set. I mean, they're all recorded together, and even though they're being released separately, they're called mesmerized and hypnotized, and we expect them to be thought of as one thing. It reminds me a little bit of Rubber Soul and Revolver. Mm-hmm. Those two albums were recorded in the same sessions. Were they? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was for like this two-month intense recording session, and then it was just sort of hacked down the middle, in a sense, in terms of how they released them, and that's why they're so extraordinary, and they're very, very different in some ways, but they're very, very similar. You can really see that it was cut from the same cloth, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I think they're two of my favorites. They totally changed the way music was done. It was galvanizing what happened at that point. And, you know, that's when Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson were in their subtle body duel, which is really quite an extraordinary story. But this sounds great. I mean, as I said, I think what a system has done and with your hand in on that is one of the most really kind of breakthrough 
musical contributions in the last decade, and I've told Serge that. I just I love what they've done. Yeah, I feel like the real beauty of that band is how successful they've become, considering the fact that they really don't fit anywhere. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> They're really, it's very far out music. Yeah, it's extreme. It's beautiful. Yeah, but it is, to my ear, not in any way mainstream. Yeah, that's what's so extraordinary, and it doesn't fit any category. Exactly, exactly. And I have to relate to that in terms yeah. of my own books, because, you know, booksellers never know where to put me. Yep. So I can be in anything from, you know, New Age to philosophy to psychology to God knows what. And then for it to be commercial as well is sort of unheard of. Have and they ever tried to steer you in a direction or tried to label you or box you in along the way? You know, they've settled on just putting it in the New Age section, which drives me crazy, but I haven't objected too much because, bizarrely, in bookstores, next to fiction, that's the highest traffic area you get in a bookstore. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a little bit disturbing to be plunked there, but that's sort of what they've had to do. And I've just been really lucky. I started out at an age where... Publishing was entirely different, and publishing, like recording industry, has gone through a lot of changes, most of them for the worse, and just a handful of huge conglomerates yeah. now really own most of publishing, just like there's only, what, two or three huge music yeah. distributors and companies. So you could actually do a book, and if it had any merit, then you could actually get it published, and it very likely would find its audience, and so... You know, I did my first book when I was 23 and fortunately had a chance to get basically a book a year since then and to sort of build an audience. So in a lot of bookstores now, they fortunately, there's just a Ken Wilber shelf. And that sort of handled the question of where to put me. Yeah, I thought last night, I went to Borders last night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And it was a Ken Wilber shelf. So, so I, I listen to System of a Down, you know, and I really hear so much of uh, similarities going on. And when Serge and I, when we first met, we're having long discussions about all of this, there's an eerie resonance, even though they're very different media in a sense, the music that they were doing and the books that I was doing. But everything else was the same. We just really didn't fit any categories. We shouldn't be commercial, but we managed to be. And you sit and listen to System of a Down CD, and I think Toxicity is put together, it's just brilliant production, but there's everything in there from folk music to opera to classical to metal to punk to rap to hip-hop, I mean, if you listen to that, you go, okay, no way in hell that's going to sell more than five copies, Yeah, and it's like, Eddie... It's like the best-selling album of the year. I mean, it's yeah. just it's unbelievable. Again, because it transcends any of those boundaries. Yeah. It's just really good. Yeah. And people like things that are really good. I agree. More than they like any flavor. Yeah. <laughs> they, like, they like really good. That's well put. That's exactly right. Well, to me, it sounds like we've got sort of a revolver rubber soul thing coming up here. Darren is singing more, and Darren and Serge singing together. There's so much harmony. We joke about them being the, uh, the Simon and Garfunkel of black metal. <laughs> <laughs> but um, last time I talked to you, Serge was still coming in and banging out some stuff, but that's you've stopped recording mostly now. Yeah, it's pretty much done. When you work on such a big volume of material, it's hard to know 
<laughs> where you stand yeah. all the time. <laughs> so, you know, we'll be mixing a song and when it's supposed to already be done and we'll listen to it, it's like, hmm, can we re-sing that part and make it better? And Serge will be like, yeah, I think I can beat that. Yeah. So there's always kind of little stuff that we're trying to always improve, but at the moment it seems like we're in pretty good shape. <laughs> Well, I can't wait for that either. There's so many things in the hopper. I think it's going to be a good year for a whole lot of people. Yeah, and I've started pre-production with the Chili Peppers for their next album. The songs sound great. Oh, fantastic. They must be kind of hitting a certain stride. Yeah. I mean, the work you did on their most famous CD was, I think, one of the reasons it was their most famous and their best. But there's also that wonderful kind of rawness and youthness about it all. But they really sound like they're could be coming into their a real mature in the best sense usually maturity and rock music don't go together but I think that is starting to happen a lot and so is that what you're sort of hearing that they're kind of coming into their own yeah they're secure in their position yeah you know they've done such big shows and sold so many records they're in a comfortable place and again working really hard in addition to rehearsing, they're coming up with a new song every day. They say every wow. day they go to rehearse. There's a new song, and there's a lot of great songs. And really just on a roll. They actually kind of came to this realization. They're working, I don't want to say less hard, but less time. Yeah. They're going for more quality yeah. time work. Yeah. Where it used to be five days a week for, you know, six months or nine months. And now they're doing four days a week and two weeks on, one week off, two weeks on, one week off. Wow. And they say every time they come into work, they're all excited about coming to work. And wow. And this feeling of, of, you know, back to the studio again. Right. So <laughs> uh, they feel like a lot of new songs are coming and there's more inspiration in the room. Yeah. And they're really excited and really happy. That sounds great. Yeah. So uh, do you have, you're going to go back in a week or two, and do you have any more travels planned? Or are you just sort of settling down? And No, I'll be in L.A. just working. Okay, cool. You know, I need to get down there in January, February, so I would love to stop by and just we'll say hi. And, and hang out. It'll be nice. Yeah, we've got some integral art stuff I want to talk with you about, and um, we want you to come play with us in some of these things. Be very what cool. else has been going on? Have you been feeling well? Are you enjoying your holiday? Yeah, you know, it's a strange thing when you're one of those artists that's sort of always creative. So as a writer, you know, I wear a couple of hats now. For most of my life, I've basically just been a writer. So I would, well, you know, and then my real job, dishwashing or whatever it was I was doing at the time to make money until I could actually support myself with writing. But every day is the same. You know, I, for whatever reason, either blessed or cursed with the opposite of writer's block. I mean, there have been mornings I would pray for a little writer's block. But, yeah, I mean, I, so every day sort of tends to look the same to me for most of my adult life, just because I would take no days off. I would sort of get up and do the same thing day in and day out. So holidays are usually just sort of more of the same. Yeah. But once I've started working with Integral Institute and Integral University and all of that, then there were, a lot of it became you know, administrative stuff that is not my favorite thing to do. So I actually have vacations now. And that part is cool. Yeah, but, I think it's good. I used to never take a day off. I remember being in the studio on Christmas Day and yeah. working every day all year round. And then the first thing was taking off weekends, and now it's taking at least a couple of weeks at this time of year, and I try to do one other 
time during the year. And I think it really feels healthy. I hear you. No, I totally hear it. But this uh, getting ready to launch in a university has been one of those 24-7 things, but in a good sense. I'm so delighted we're doing this thing. Great. But the writing was just such a pure act of creativity that it's very different than almost any other kind of work I've done, even though I can enjoy a lot of other kind of work. And it's a lot of fun in it. Writing is just this, there's a purity about it, because it's just you and a blank sheet of paper. And if it doesn't work, it's entirely your fault. And if it does work, it's entirely to your credit. And there's nothing between you and that pure act of creativity. And that's just a different, that's a different domain. So are you, are you, are you in a relationship now? I'm in a relationship now. Is that person with you? That person was with me, and she left last night for three days, and she's back on the 27th. Very cool. So how long has that been going on? New. Just started. Really? Yeah. Are you in love? I'm in love. We're having ah, a nice time. That is so cool. Don't you love the takeoff part? It's great. Oh, man. I mean, everything is so wonderful. All four quadrants come alive when... You've got hormones and love and eros and everything going. It's so cool. I met her in London. The Chili Peppers played these four giant shows at Hyde Park, 90,000 people each show. Wow. In total, it was the biggest concert in the history of England. My God. This summer, and I met her there. So is she British? She's actually from Puerto Rico, but she was living in London working. Very cool. Born and raised Puerto Rico? Born and raised Puerto Rico and then lived in New York for a little while and then like high school years in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Oh, my God. So it looks like it's working. We're having a really nice time. That's fantastic. Really nice. That's How about you? Uh, been in a relationship for about a year, loving it. Great. Yeah. Just... Where did you guys meet? Most of the things in the Boulder, Denver area, people that are interested in this happened through Naropa. Mm-hmm. And she was getting a master's degree at Naropa. And what normally happens is anywhere from once to two or three times a year, I'll invite Naropa students up to the house and just do afternoon question and answer with them. And she was one of the ones that came up that way. Great. And it's really good because I don't get out much. So it's really, yeah. it's really great when somebody actually comes to your door. Great. Yeah, it's worked terrific. And, you know, it never ceases to amaze me what men and women do for each other. Yeah. Or any couple, a yeah. hetero, bi, tri, yeah. but there's just love. some... Good feeling. Oh, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it, you know, it completes you, but it also, you know, in a strange way, you can become whole in the presence of another and all those romantic, goofy things, but they're all true. Mm-hmm. And they're all true <laughs> because yeah. they're true. Yeah. And But it always astonishes me to get in the midst of something like that and just see how you know, ever fresh the moment can be when you allow yourself to open up to those things. It's true. Do you have a history of long relationships? I do. I do. I think I'm very fortunate and have had really three or four, you know, major relationships. I'm in my mid-50s now, and they've each lasted about a decade. One was tragic. I lost Trey out of cancer. And that was a very, I wrote a book about it called Grace and Grit. And that was a very difficult period, but it also, strange as it sounds, it had a happy ending because she died awakened. I mean, truly, radiantly awake. And Wow. Oh, it was just 
stunning and it changed me and everybody who was in that orbit and is one of the real graces in my life and so that was five years we, we had five years and the others have lasted basically almost about a decade so I've been really lucky that way great how about yourself Quit. and to have long relationships yeah last one was short it was maybe three years the one before that was about seven years have you been married before? I've never been married. And so do you, at some point you think, not that it, you know, somebody has to, but you, is it something you thought about you want to do? You want to have kids? You have a, I've never wanted to be married or have kids, but if it happens, it happens. It happens. So you wouldn't totally resist that if it was the right person? And I don't know. I'd probably have to be there to know. Yeah. But it's not anything that I've ever dreamed about or wanted. Oh, yeah, well, you know, man... <laughs> I think it also has to do with just whatever your growing up family situation was like. Are you brothers, sisters? I'm a I'm an only I'm an Air Force brat, but my parents were really deeply in love in a very genuine way. They were sort of each other's best friend, and they still are to this day. And I think it had a real strong impact on me. Just what you're saying, basically. And when I was first married in my early twenties. I was ready to have kids just because I had no major objection to it. When I started writing, became sort of famous and sort of became, you know, a thing, an entity, and identified with my work so much as men often do, then kids became detraction, something I didn't want to do. So I've gone back and forth on it, but a lot of it has to do not just, I think, with what you're bringing up, which is very true, but it also, for men, it depends a lot on the woman. I mean, if you meet somebody you really fall in love and she really wants to have kids, that's the way a lot of men end up doing it. Yeah. Because I haven't met very many men that feel incredibly strongly that I want to raise a family and I want to have kids. Well, I feel like I know some who do. Well, I'm sure that they're out there. Yeah. I know a lot more women that yeah. feel that way. Yeah, and I have um, my seven-year relationship ended because she wanted to have children, and I didn't. Right. Right. That's the way my last one ended. But we agreed, in a sense. We sort of knew that from the beginning, yeah. that she was going to have kids. I wasn't. We said, well, let's give it five years. And we literally, it was five years to the month. Wow. <laughs> and now she's married to one of my best friends and had a child. I'm the godfather of the child, and I was best man at the wedding. And it's a bizarrely happy ending. That's beautiful. Yeah. I have the same thing that you have in terms of the relationship with work is so strong that I truly believe if I had kids, I'd have to give up a tremendous amount of my life. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Yeah. It, you know, it's hard. What happened, This you might find this interesting. When Treya, we met, fell in love just almost immediately. Uh, we got married very shortly thereafter, 10 days after being married, we discovered she had cancer. That's amazing. And spent the next five years basically battling that illness. And we both, the changes we both went through were really extraordinary. And I was in my mid-30s, and so was she. So it wasn't that we were, you know, youngsters. 
But boy, we, it was an extraordinary story, and what she did was just so amazing. And she ended up so deeply realized and awakened and radiant. It was just really extraordinary. And she wanted to have children. And when I first met her, I was at the point where I didn't want to, for just the reasons you were bringing up. I was very much into work, really thought that the kids would detract from it, which, of course, they will, to some degree. <laughs> and so... When I was trying to sort of, you know, rationally think my way through it, I asked about a half dozen of my best men friends who had kids. People like Sam Burkholz, who was the founder of Shambhala Publications, and Mitch Kapoor, who had founded Lotus. And um, these are very, very, let's put it this way, guys that were really into their work. Mm -hmm. And all of them had at least two kids. Some had three. One had four. And I said, look, don't jerk me around now because I really am trying to make up my mind here. So just tell me the truth. And I swear I won't tell anybody if you say you hate your kids and don't want to have them. But if you had a do-over, would you have kids? And every single one of them, six out of six, said not only would they do it, it was by far the most important thing in their life. Yeah, everyone tells me this. Yeah, that if they had to give up the kid or their work yeah. easily, the work, forget it. So if you think about that, and think about the satisfaction that you and I get from our work, mm -hmm. if you can imagine something even more satisfying, mm -hmm. it's sort of, <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, but. See, well, I believe it, but I also feel like there's a personality type involved. Yeah. I, I feel like there's some, you know, when I hear people talking about it, about like wanting to carry on who you are through someone else, those ideas really turn me off. Yep. Having a child in some way, people look at it as a self-aggrandizing thing. Yeah. And I don't feel that way. <laughs> I don't yeah. feel that way about myself. Yeah. No. To where I want to carry it on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> I've tried to figure out, I mean, obviously what you try to do when you hear something like that, because on the one hand, it really sounds like, you know, that you're just kind of saying it for a little bit of exaggeration. And say, you know, my kids are so important that... If I had to choose, I would definitely choose them instead of work and so on. I suspect, anyway, that it's, it's kind of, you know, certainly it's not an either-or. And I think it would be extremely difficult for these guys to give up work. But they're conveying something, that this is really so deeply important to them. And it, all of them got this after the kid was born. So, in other words, I think there's some, on one hand, it might just be plain old, you know, the way Mother Nature yeah. tricks us wandering men into taking care of our offspring. And it could be deeply narcissistic. It could be all sorts of stuff. But whatever it was, it really, really added so much meaning to these yeah. guys' lives. And so you sort of sit there and kind of try to think your way into it. I do anyway. And, of course, that's what you can't quite do. You don't really know what you're going to feel like until that kid is born, placed in your arms. Mm -hmm. And you start, you know, drooling and slobbering and sobbing and you know but i'm not sure i want to get to that point <laughs> I'm, I'm with you you know I'm with, have you ever had a pet do you ever have a dog <laughs> yeah pets i'm okay with well no the reason i ask is i know that you know i really love my dog yeah really love them yeah yeah <laughs> and people who have children say well it's like loving your dog but a hundred times more yeah and that it seems hard to imagine hard to imagine I, I believe them when they say it i hear you I just can't. I hear you. That's exactly my dilemma. And there's only one way to find out, and I don't want to, you know, be in that position because by definition you're hooked then. Yeah. It's like saying, well, if you want to find out if you really like heroin, yeah. 
Yeah. Try it 40 times. Yeah. And go, oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So if nothing else, then you actually find yourself in a position where for other reasons you're deciding to get married and have kids. I mean, you, you and me are going to have a talk afterwards. Yes. Now I'm going to go, okay, now tell me the truth. Is 100%. it? How, <laughs> how cool is it? So maybe, uh, maybe Miss Puerto Rico. You never know. You never know. <laughs> we will stay tuned. <laughs> Listen, you've been great. Thank Just you. great. I'm definitely going to come see you in L.A. And, you know, if you're ever in this area. Okay. And we are going to try to, you know, we've got that whole integral art weekend where we do Big Mind Process and all sorts of other things. Saul Williams and Surge and Crichton. And, uh, and I'll email you and, and follow up on some stuff, too. Great. Oh, it's been wonderful talking with you, buddy. Same. I okay. look forward to hanging. Me too, bud. I'll talk to you later. Bye. See you. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them. Which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world. 